Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. And welcome to another episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Mitch Michaels hosting this week, and thank you again for listening to the best of TC Live. Another week down in Melbourne as we get ready for the Australian Open final matches. And we're gearing up and getting you ready with the best segments this week on TC Live down in Melbourne. A lot of great stuff to get to this week. First up on the TC Live podcast is an interview with a recently announced member of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. In the class of 2020, it's Goran Ivanisevic. He's captivated tennis fans for his entire 16-year career, which culminated in one of the most improbable victories in the history of sport. When he won the 2001 Wimbledon champion as a wild card, the first man in Grand Slam history, the only man in Grand Slam history to do so. Along with Conchita Martinez, Ivanisevic will be enshrined in tennis immortality at the ceremony this summer in Newport, Rhode Island. He sat down on set with Martina Navratilova and Brett Haber on TC Live. And we are very pleased this Wednesday morning to welcome Goran Ivanisevic back to Tennis Channel Live. Congratulations on the... Uh, Martini, do you want to show him that secret handshake to the Hall of Fame? Do you want to... Do we have one? I don't know. It's, it's close. That's... Seems right. That's oh, nice. I like interesting. it. I didn't know. Like, now every, it's not a secret anymore. No, um, Goran, tell us how you got the news from uh, from Todd Martin, and were you surprised when uh, you got first, it? First, thank you. Uh, actually, yes, a little bit. Two months ago, he called me and told me the news, and he told me, "Listen, you have to be extremely quiet." <laughs> And that's the news that you don't want to be quiet. You want to share with every <laughs> single person you see in that moment. And uh, I really kept it quiet. I told to my wife and I told to the team uh, before we came here because, you know, we spent too a lot of times together. So I, I want them to they know from me, not from the press or somebody else. But I was okay. Nobody knew. And uh, it's something unbelievable. Yesterday I felt extremely nervous going on the court. Uh, underdressed because you know all these <laughs> legends uh, there and uh, I was uh, underdressed because I had to go sit it's five fine. minutes after in the box so but uh, I was so nervous so I can imagine how nervous I'm gonna be in five months when I come to Newport. You had many finals at Wimbledon expected to perhaps hoping to win and then you win as a wild card what was your expectation going into the tournament when you got the wild card? Actually, I was very happy to win, uh, to get a wild card. Yeah. Mm. So on um, expectation zero, because I played pretty badly week before I got a wild card. I didn't expect anything. You were well I rested. Uh, and uh, still, till this day, I don't know what happened there. I cannot uh, say. I felt good after first or second round. I started to feel good. I knew something will happen. I didn't know what, but uh, every round I played better and better. I got my sound of my serve back. I was serving better. I was, I have to say, lucky because uh, that time Wimbledon was a little cheap and they didn't put the roof yet. <laughs> so that rain saved me against Henman, uh, three-day yeah. match. 
and that Monday final probably the best atmosphere. The crowd that really helped. Ever going to be in Wimbledon? Yeah. Tennis was not the best, but uh, this football crowd yeah. uh, Monday final amazing. Nine seven in the fifth over Patrick Rafter. So folks in this country don't remember it uh, quite as fondly as you do. And <laughs> then Goran. You went home to split. There was a celebration near the harbor. I think nearly a quarter million people came out to celebrate with you. And uh, what happened? I felt a little hot, so I took my clothes off, you know. All uh -huh. your clothes off? Uh, not all, but uh, 95%. <laughs> 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 uh, okay. So I stopped because I said, Chidi, what are you doing, man? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> only 200,000 uh, people, so you have to stop. <laughs> So, Serbia and Croatia have, have had some issues in the past, to say the least. How is it work? I think that's what I love about tennis. It's so democratic. We don't see borders. So how is it working with Novak, who's supposed to be the enemy, but really is your friend? Well, he, was, uh, he was always Doesn't my matter, friend. Right? Doesn't matter. We speak the same exactly. language, same mentality. There was one country before we right. split. Uh, I know him since he was 14 years old, so uh, yeah. it's it's very easy, very simple, you know. Uh, it's very important when you work with somebody, first of all, for me, the language. So when I explain something, uh, it's easier in our language and, and the mentality. The things he's, he does, you know, a lot of things I will do when I was a <laughs> tennis player, so it's easier to understand when he does something <laughs> bad or whatever. <laughs> so do you know who's going to be inducting you in the Hall of Fame? Uh, not yet. I have a person who I would I would like to ask, but I didn't see him yet. Ah, okay. Um, it's interesting that uh, you say you can identify with Novak when he kind of loses the plot a little bit because it reminds you of yourself. What, what do you admire most about Novak, and what have you learned the most? I know yeah, the it's the coach's job to teach the pupil, but what has Novak taught you, maybe? But uh, he is amazing perfectionist. He wants to learn every day you you will be surprised you know you see okay the last past nine years he's by far the best tennis player by statistics and what can i bring it to him and he he wants to learn every day something new he asked me can i do this better what can i do better and, and that that uh, hunger of knowledge that he wants to learn it's it's amazing you know and that keeps him uh, where he is now so it's it's and the champion he is the way he can turn around things, it's, it's uh, just, I never saw that uh, from any tennis player mm. and it's great so I can be close to him and see that uh, it's just, for me as a coach, after that, uh, I mean, uh, doesn't get any better. Anything surprised you about Novak that you didn't know? That you can share? I mean, they're all uh, different in, I coach a couple of people and they're all different in, their own way, you know. It can be sometimes crazy, it can be uh, different, but uh, didn't surprise yeah. me anything. Nothing can surprise me any any <laughs> this time anymore. Goran, congratulations. We look forward to uh, sharing the experience with you in Newport this summer. Just checking, good Goran, bad Goran, 911 emergency Goran, they're all coming to they're Newport? They're all coming, but I think they're going to agree on one speech. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You'll be on your best behavior. Too many speeches, you know. <laughs> that, that will be must-see TV this summer, and, and we'll have it for you on Tennis Channel. Thanks, Goran. Great stuff from Brett and Martina, and it would be quite extraordinary if both Goran and Conchita Martinez, both coach major champions this year in Melbourne, very possible with Djokovic and Muguruza just one match away, that the two Hall of Fame members will be coaching major champions this year in Melbourne. That would be something indeed.
And speaking of Djokovic, next up on the TC Live podcast, we recap his match with Roger Federer, two all-time greats doing battle for the 50th time and 17th in a major. The Australian Open semifinals was a straight-set victory for Djokovic, who won in three tightly contested sets, an outcome many expected given Federer's grueling journey just to make the semis and his current health as he was battling a groin injury. Jim Courier, Lindsay Davenport, John Wertheim, and Brett Haber break down the match and discuss what it means for both great champions going forward on the TC Live podcast. Novak Djokovic has been to the semifinals here in Australia eight times now, and he has never lost. That continued last night against Roger Federer as he now sits on the doorstep of major title 17 and getting back to number one. We welcome you back to Tennis Channel Live. Jim, you were in the bunker for that match last night. Uh, some will speculate that had Roger converted one of those break points at 4-1 in the first set, things could have been different. What do you say? Would they have been, or was it sort of a foregone conclusion the way he was physically? Novak was going to win this match, but it would have been probably four sets. Mm -hmm. You know, if he gets to 5-1, Federer is going to win that set, you would think, and Novak is going to regroup for set two. Roger wasn't moving at any level. We should tip our caps to Roger for even showing up. There are many players who would not have even played this one, given how he was most likely feeling. That's what his wife told me afterwards. She's like, I wouldn't have gone out there. Um, but Roger knows there are 15,000 people and millions around the world that need to see a semifinal. He gave us one. And, you know, Novak, on the on the on Roger's best day here this year, he his level wasn't close to Novak's in this tournament. Novak, kinda, 18 yeah. unforced errors to 35 for Roger in the match. He broke Roger four times. Here are the fellows in the press room. I still think he played pretty well. You know, he was coming to the net and trying to mix things up. And um, I guess when, when you're feeling, I'm, 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 I don't know exactly to what degree his injury is, but, you know, when you're feeling a little bit uh, hurt, you know, you kind of go for your shots even more. And um, so I, I was a bit tense at the beginning, um, but, you know, winning the first set was probably the key kind of turnaround point. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to serve it out. Uh, to be honest, had, had, I feel like I sh should have found a way to do that, but I uh, wasn't able to. Uh, but we know how tough he is, especially when you give him too many second serves. And, uh, and, uh, and obviously it was better on the day today, there's no question. What happens to Novak Djokovic in tie breaks? It's like he goes, he's, he's already obviously great, and then he goes to like a superhuman player. Yeah, he's got that rare player that has the ability to play his absolute best in the biggest moments. Some players might struggle with nerves. Novak falls back. He goes, you can see it in his eyes, and he goes back to not missing. There's zero unforced errors, it feels like, when he plays a tie break and putting pressure on his opponent. He knew it. He knew that first set was so key. And once it got to a tie break, Inevitably, it felt like it was Novak set to win. He's played six tiebreaks, last six tiebreaks against Roger, six unforced errors. I was mm. talking to Goran Ivanisevic yesterday, and I said, what don't we know about Novak Djokovic? You know what one of the first things he said? He is money in these tiebreaks. Yeah. Why don't you guys give him enough credit for that? I thought that match yesterday, first half hour, Roger swinging with abandon, and you just had a feeling things were going to regress to the mean. Goran, why don't we give him enough credit? Isn't winning Wimbledon enough credit? Yeah, Goodness exactly, sakes. Exactly. I mean, get, what do you want, man? Of course we know you're awesome in the tiebreakers. <laughs> and he plays a little looser in different points of the set, and you wonder if it's just too much for him to commit that much energy when it's not a tiebreaker. But to his credit, he saves it, and when he needs it most, the guy is the definition of clutch right now in men's tennis.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Great to hear the mutual admiration as well between Novak and Roger. Roger answering the bell when he wasn't moving well, still battling it out, showing the heart of a champion. Novak just too much in that scenario. And he's going to look for his eighth title in Melbourne against Dominic Team. We'll have Paul Anacone join the show shortly to break down the men's final. But up next, the TC Live podcast has a discussion on the fastest rising star in all of tennis, Coco Goff. The 15-year-old continues to improve as she defeated defending champion Naomi Osaka in route to a fourth-round run in her first Aussie Open main draw. Martina Navratilova, Jim Courier, John Wertheim, and Brett Haber break down her continued success on the biggest stages and the successful coaching relationship she's maintained with her father, Corey. Here it is now. Look, we all know that the parent-as-coach setup is often fraught, to say the least, but it seems like there's a lot of good energy coming from the Goff's family setup. What, what do you like about the way they've handled Coco's rise? It doesn't seem to be a highly pressurized situation. It seems like they're having fun on their journey together, and, and I like the long-term vision that they really have for Coco. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that they could be chasing right now, but I think aligning themselves also with Roger Federer's management group, that's a smart thing to do because if you're looking for someone who has managed their schedule for the long term from the beginning, it's Roger Federer. And I think that they can learn a lot and work well together to, to establish sort of the, the, the groundwork for a long and successful career, hoping that she's healthy. But most of all, she just seems happy mm-hmm. and she's connected to it and she's not overly pressurized from the outside looking in. You go first? Well, they've really balanced it. I mean, there are obviously opportunities, not just commercial opportunities, but fun things. You can go to the Teen Choice Awards, and they're really managing that. And I talked to Coco well, maybe maybe 60 days ago, and she was telling me about going trick-or-treating in her Halloween costume, mm-hmm. and she was talking from the back of a, a car because it was raining. And I think they're giving her some taste. I mean, she, she's out there. She's social. She's going to New York. But she's also not flying all over the world, chasing every dollar and every opportunity. It does seem like she's extraordinarily happy. You, you said that word. I mean, yeah. even playing doubles, there's a real joy, and you don't always necessarily see that with phenoms. Well, they are taking the long-term look rather than what's best right now, but overall. But it's so often the parents, because of the parents, you get to a certain point, but because of the parents, you don't go beyond that point. I don't think that'll be the situation here. They seem to know exactly what they're doing. Also, it's all been done before. They don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You know exactly what you should be doing on the court, off the court, food-wise, training-wise, all of that. So they, 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 they have every, all the bases covered, but they're not stressing about it, and they're taking the long-term look, and that's the most important thing. She's out of events until uh, Indian Wells, but, but she's going to play Fed Cup, which doesn't count against the age restriction limit. Is that a good team environment for her to get a little extra match play in? You sure, and I don't know if you saw her press conference afterwards after her loss, but she said the Olympics is something I'm definitely looking at. So she is thinking long-term, I think playing Fed Cup, the team environment, that will help her. But I also think we saw talk sometimes about how these careers are getting older and players playing into their late 30s. You no longer have, oh, boy, I got six years to make my nut. 
span this out. She's got 20 years. Just pump the brakes a little bit. It, and she has plenty of things to work on. You know, she's already so good, but there are, are certainly mm -hmm. areas that were exposed by Sonia Kennan. The forehand certainly can get better. Um, the serve is good. It can improve as well. So um, the fitness will continue as she continues to, to mature just age-wise. Um, she's hardly close to a finished product, and how great is she already? It's pretty awesome. What I like about the father, he knows that he doesn't want to throw too much information at her just little by little, but she's very court aware. Uh, the tennis IQ is off the charts already. She's very aware of what's going on during the match and can problem solve at 15. So, yeah. Sky's the limit. All right, you can see Coco make her Fed Cup debut against the Latvians in Everett, Washington. That'll be next Saturday right here on Tennis Channel. Fantastic conversation, as always, on TC Live. And it's important to note that as Coco Golf continues to rise in the rankings, she's still very much in the hunt to represent America in the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. She's fifth in the hunt for four single slots and still has time to climb higher. Talk about a summer 16 if she makes it. Switching gears now to a much more serious topic, the sports world lost an icon Sunday morning, with Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and seven other people losing their lives in a tragic helicopter crash. The death of Bryant was an enormous loss in the Los Angeles and basketball communities, but the entire sports world has shared in the painful impact. On TC Live, Martina Navratilova, John Wertheim, and Brett Haber discussed the tragedy of Kobe's death and explained why he meant so much in the tennis world as well. Like the rest of the sports world, the tennis community is reacting this morning to the tragic news back home in California that Kobe Bryant has passed away at the age of 41 following a helicopter crash north of Los Angeles. Kobe spent time around the pro tennis world last year in connection with the children's book that he wrote that was based in a fantasy tennis universe and reaction from the tennis community has been profound. Rod Laver among those sharing his grief this morning, tweeting out RIP to Kobe Bryant, too young and deepest condolences as one sports legend acknowledges another. John, uh, you interacted with Kobe extensively through Sports Illustrated. You interviewed him for us last summer at the US Open. Your thoughts this morning? Yeah, I mean, um, a 41-year-old man uh, and his teenage daughter pass away and words are inadequate it's it's heartbreaking and it's tragic I, I think what what I'm struck by is that he was known for what for being this intensely competitive ambitious athlete and he funneled that after basketball into so much else and he was a committed father he won an Academy Award for uh, for, for dear basketball he was a tech investor he would appear all over the world we met him at, at Tennis Channel last year when he had written a tennis book about pursuing your dreams so this is a deep tragedy and a peerless basketball player, but I, I think also for me some of that is just this is someone who is very much relevant in the present tense. You know, few athletes transcend their sport, fewer athletes yet transcend sport itself, and Kobe was one of those people. And uh, tragedy beyond words, but what I, what I really like, appreciate about him as a man is his, uh, his uh, support of women's sports, girls' sports, uh, most men, men athletes don't do that, so we thank him for that. And it's just a shame that his second act may have been even greater than his uh, basketball career. So just shame all, all around. And even here, halfway around the world, in a place where Kobe Bryant never played a game, this morning's news of his passing has cast a pall. Among Kobe's post-NBA endeavors was tennis. He played it, and last year he wrote a children's fantasy book about it. In connection with that book, Kobe came to the U.S. Open last year, and he came to TC Live for a chat with John Wertheim. Here is a piece of that interview. Given what we know about your skill set, work so hard, fierce competitive nature, 
You ever wonder how you do an individual sport? Cut out for this? Yeah, I, I used to I used to wonder that quite a bit sometimes. It'd be times during the Lakers season when things would get really stressful. And I would just sit around and say, man, I wish I played an individual sport. Uh, but there's something even more challenging in individual sports in that you have to deal with the inner challenge. Right. Right? You have to be able to deal with you know the uncertainties from shot to shot or the disappointments from shot to shot because it's just you out there. I understand your two older daughters have gravitated to team sports. Two younger daughters, would you would you get them into tennis? Yeah. So our our our, uh, our daughter who's two, soon to be three, we'll probably give her a tennis racket. Although it's a little too early, but I would love to see her with a tennis racket at some point. Uh, you're here to watch the tennis, and now that you're a player, you have a, a different appreciation. What do you look for? I mean, when you come and watch these matches, what are you seeing as an elite athlete? Well, I, I try to see what is the strategy for each player, because each player comes in with a game plan. And you kind of you, you want to see the game within the game. Yeah, it's, you know, you see some cool shots and things of that nature. But I'm kind of looking at what is the strategy that they're having, because it's, it's, it's a chess game that's happening between two players. And um, that's what I like to see. And then I like to see the progression of that. You, know, you start the game with this tactic, and then you try to phase into the next one, you know, and then the next one, and then the next one. It's kind of that battle of wills. He had a, a genuine affinity for the sport in a number of ways, not just the book that he wrote, but, but playing it and appreciating it as a, as a son of Europe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he knew his tennis. And even early in his Lakers career, he went to the, the Davis Cup when it was at the Forum. He wrote a book last year about tennis. Legacy and the Queen was the book he wrote, and this wasn't some memoir. I mean, this was sort of a fanciful book about pursuing your dreams, and it was, as Martina said, it had a very feminist bent. He wrote it for his four daughters. Um, we were talking before. I mean, this was someone who was tweeting during Federer-Nadal matches. Yeah. So I think one reason his death may be so resonant here is he was a real tennis fan. Marty, legacy thoughts? Goes beyond basketball. Goes beyond sports. Um, his intensity. I mean, I, I think you have to talk about that because it's I think matched by Rafa Nadal, maybe Roger Federer on a less obvious scale. But uh, just the good that he brought uh, and the joy he brought to so many and inspired so many kids to do better, boys and girls. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right now on the Tennis Channel Live podcast, calling in from Melbourne, Australia, our own Paul Anacone, the guy that, in addition to coaching Roger Federer and Pete Sampras, actually won the Australian Open doubles title 35 years ago. Paul, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reminding me how old I am. 35 years? There's no way it was 35 years ago, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you, I guess. We're going to have to get our, <laughs> our best fact checkers on that. I'm, I'm just going off the exactly, research. Exactly, yeah. But I agree. It, it can't be that long ago. Get uh, on it, guys. Get on it. <laughs> Paul, appreciate you coming on. Uh, on, a, on a serious note, the last clip we just played on the TC Live podcast was remembering Kobe. It was a tragic set of circumstances here in the helicopter crash on Sunday. Uh, on, on one hand, it was very powerful to see the sports community rally around how much they idolized him growing up. We saw a lot of tributes in the tennis world. And, and Paul, being in Australia, 
What kind of vibe were you sensing? I know it was a very sad day, but we saw a lot of we saw a lot of tributes. Novak Djokovic, Coco Golf, Katie McNally, Kyrgios wore his jersey out onto the court before his match against Nadal. The the mood. I know it was somber, but what was it like in the Kobe remembrance factor down in Melbourne? Well, it was really kind of numb, you know. I mean, it was early in the morning. Uh, the next uh, morning, when we woke up down here and, and got the tragic news, and and you know, I I for one, I, w- I was in my hotel room, and um, I basically just stayed in bed for about three hours and watched the news, and was on the phone with my wife the almost the entire time, and and just neither one of us could really grasp what had happened. Um, and I remember getting out and going to work and going to the courts and there was just a, there was just a giant malaise over everything. Even, you know, down here on the other side of the world, uh, Kobe touched so many people and the tragedy really left everybody kind of, you know, gasping, uh, gasping for air and trying to really, wrap their minds around it that these all these nine people had lost their lives and and you know when you have a superstar like that that's touched so many lives um it's just breathtaking you know you, you know we build up our superstars to kind of be bigger than life and you don't think things like this can happen and then you know to compound the fracture uh, to compound um the fractured that we all felt to have the kids that have you know lost their lives in that horrible accident too so you know it's it's just it's one of those moments that it's really just a gut check uh a reality check and and so cliched but boy i mean it just makes you really really um take notice to how fragile everything is so it was it was pretty numbing. It was numbing, and all across the grounds, and the players, and the tributes, and a lot of people with their heads hanging and and scratching their heads. So it was one of those phenomenons that you remember where you were on those horrific few moments. Yeah, it was it was very numbing indeed, and uh, you know. We, we all send our condolences to Kobe Bryant, his family, the families of the other victims involved. Um, and then looking back, and what we played was a clip of Kobe at the U.S. Open last year. This is a guy that inspired so many, especially in a sport like tennis, an individual sport that took his Mamba mentality to heart. But Paul, he also loved tennis, and, and you saw that when he was on our set last year. Uh, just a just good guy to be around and somebody that I think had so much more to give uh, in his post-retirement career. Yeah, that's what's heartbreaking. You saw the passion that he was bringing to the next chapter of his life, and and you saw, you know, the passion and commitment, and really the the exuberance. You know, he was bringing to his family, to his kids, to his daughter's basketball, to being a dad, to the way he was going about his life. And you know, when I got to see all the video and see his passion about embracing tennis and following that, I just, you know, brought such a smile to my face because I just said, you know, here's one of the greatest athletes, most competitive athletes that's ever lived. And he's taking this passion and using it as a healthy driving force into the next chapters and to the next pages of his life. So it is, you know, it's just incredibly crushing. And, um, you know, 
just one of those things that you never get over and you just learn to deal with and, and you just sum it up perfectly. It's, you know, all you can say is our hearts are broken and um, we can just pray and give all of our thoughts to the families of the nine folks that lost their lives. We certainly can. Again, condolences out to every family involved. Uh, we're going to switch it up here on the TC Live podcast to a much, much less serious note and talk about the finals that are we're gearing up for tonight is the women's final, followed by the men's final the next day. We're going to start with the women's one, Sophia Kennan taking on Garbini Muguruza. If you were a betting man and you had this final from the get-go, you would have made a lot of money based on what we're, what we're seeing. Kennan versus Muguruza, this is the fifth this is the fifth straight final that we're looking at that doesn't have a top five player in it on the women's game. So much to unpack from that. But Paul, starting with Kennan, 21 years old, the young American who won a couple of titles last year. We all were impressed with her game. We thought that she could progress and do very well for herself and have a great career that maybe had slam finals in them. But I think we're all kind of taken aback with how fast it's come. And now she's in her first major final. It's been a meteoric rise, to say the least. Oh, it's been incredible to watch. You know, I, I remember watching her earlier last year and just really kind of be taken aback by her uh, competitive spirit. Um, she's one of these rare uh, young athletes that even at 21 years of age, she can kind of process stress and process adversity and still find ways to kind of stay in the moment and, and just uh, use that tenaciousness to drive her and she doesn't get clouded. Um, she doesn't get doubtful. Uh, she gets just resilient. She gets almost more clear picture of what she's trying to do in pressure packed moments. And, um, it's, it's just been incredible to watch and, and to think here at 21 years of age, she's already at a final of a major. It's, it's just been amazing. And, and I, you know, I think there's more to come and it's going to be, I'll tell you, it's going to be a very interesting matchup. You know, Garbina Muguruza kind of slipped off the planet, so to speak with her greatness uh, last year. And, and she comes down here with Conchita Martinez, who's a great champion and a tremendous tennis mind rejuvenated, refocused, and Muguruza is playing amazing tennis. And, and the simple equation is going to be, you know, will Muguruza's power be consistent enough to knock Kennan off the court? So she's going to have to be more on, so to speak. If she's on, she should have too much power. If Kennan can manage the moment and make her hit enough balls from awkward positions in the court, she's going to create opportunity. Um, we saw that in the semifinals with the great movement of Simona Halep. Halep had plenty of chances, um, created a bunch of opportunities. Um, Muguruza had, I believe, close to 30 unforced errors in the first set, oh. but was able to rate the ship in the big moments. So it's going to be amazing to watch them both manage the pressure. Yeah, Kennan, her ability to problem solve has been great. Pressure moments, as you mentioned. She was down 6-4 in that first set tiebreaker to Barty, won the last four, wins that match in straight sets. And Muguruza working with Conchita Martinez, a proven champion, as you stated. Unseated in this tournament, which doesn't feel right. Paul, if she wins this, she becomes, I think, just the fifth woman uh, to win on all surfaces, uh, which is which is an incredible stat, to say the least. And we talk about how young Kennan is. Muguruza, this will be her third major. She's only 26 years old. And I, I've just been so impressed, Paul, with her 
recommitment to fitness, dealing with the Aussie summer, the heat that that's going on. And also her ability to stay mentally in it. In the past, I think we've seen her kind of get broke, go down early in a set and kind of fade away. That's not the case this year. Yeah, I mean, Garvin is one of those really kind of passionate athletes, but also volatile emotionally. And, and sometimes that passion wavers over into distraction, doubt, a little bit of loss of confidence. And we've seen you know, her flip the page here. And whether that's Conchita Martinez helping, whether that's her commitment to fitness, her commitment to emotional stability, or a combination of all of those things, you know, we've seen that down here. And look, we've seen her win two majors already. So we know when she plays well, what she can bring. And it's been a treat to see it back. Um, she's a tremendous athlete, um, a shot maker, a power tennis player, and to see her hard work pay off um, and reap some dividends has been a lot of fun. And you said it, you know, she's only 26. <laughs> she's 26 years of age, and this is going to be her shot at her third major. And, um, you know, you mentioned the women's game right now. You know, there is an incredible amount of parity. And, and, opportunity abroad. So we're going to see, you know, I think we're going to see more of this. And, and for all the ladies on tour, I think it's a, you know, a big fuel for their fire, so, so to speak, because, you know, there's a possibility to, you know, win a major and, and look at what's going on. Like you said, unseated players in finals, 21 year old Sophia Cannon. And here we go. Yeah, it's going to be great. Muguruza would be the the seventh woman to win a major on all surfaces. The parity factor can be summed up best as this. In the last 25 majors, dating back six years, 23 of those 25, we've had a first-time semifinalist. So women are rising fast, and they're they're in it, and, and it's going to be fun to see. Very good matchup stylistically, Kenan and Muguruza tonight. Here on the TC Live podcast with Paul Anacone, we'll switch to the men's final, a final that features Novak Djokovic taking on Dominic Team. I want to start first, Paul, with with Novak. He's into the final again for the eighth time. He's 7-0 and in finals. He beats Federer in straight sets, Milos before him. The draw and the schedule hasn't been the most grueling for Djokovic to get to this point, but as someone that's watched him his whole career and, and, and even coached against him and sometimes, what do you think about his form going into the 2020 final? Is he at his A game? Has he even had to have it yet? What do you think about Nole's form going into this one? Well, look, he lost one set first match he played in the tournament. And and whenever you see so many comprehensive wins and someone in charge of their emotions so clearly, it's really, for me as a tennis person, a, a treat to watch because, you know, there's such an efficiency. There is such an ability to make a very difficult and complicated game look so easy. Uh, the movement, the ability to redirect power, the ability to absorb power, um, to open up a court and to dissect it like an, like a surgeon has been, you know, on full view for everybody. It's, it's just been incredible to watch. Um, he's so comfortable down here, uh, winning seven times and, and just really feels great on these hard courts. And, I just think he's been in an amazing, amazing form. Um, you know, that being said, Dominic team has been awesome. Um, he had a little hiccup, uh, earlier on, 
against a young Australian um, Bolt in five sets it took him to get through. But since then, he's been great. He played great tennis against Taylor Fritz, just losing that third set. Um, he was amazing against Rafa. And then again last night in huge moments um, because that's the most composed Sasha Zverev I've seen. Right. Uh, I thought Zverev did an incredible job. And he was right there emotionally the whole time, and and team never went away. So, if team's fuel tank is okay, and he's one of the most fit guys on tour, um, I, I'm not going to be surprised if this is an absolute war because team has the firepower to beat Djokovic. He's done it, I believe, since the beginning of 2019. He's seven and two against the big three. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he is someone that respects those guys, but he's got the weapons to beat him. Now the next challenge is, can he beat him in a huge moment? He beat Novak on clay at Roland Garros. Um, and that's, you know, Dominic team's best surface. Can he do it here on the hard courts? I think he can. Um, will he? Uh, time will tell. But I think if he's rejuvenated and refreshed, I cannot wait to pull up a seat because we're going to see some incredible power ground strokes and uh, Novak's elasticity and ability to offensively defend is going to be tested. Yeah, the pace he puts on the ball at team, the ability to, to stay active in these matches with his fitness level, and the fact that you mentioned he beat He's beaten Djokovic in slams. I know it was the French Open twice, but he has the ability to beat the big three. We'll see if he has it in the big moment. The one thing I'm looking for, Paul, is team serving. I thought it got noticeably better this tournament, and, of course, you're playing against the greatest returner probably of all time. So that's the matchup I'm looking at. How can team serve under pressure? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that you know he's got to resign himself to the fact that he's not going to get a million free points against Novak because – He's such a great returner of serve, but what he needs to do is just buy into the serve plus one philosophy and strategy, which is he wants to serve and try to get Novak off balance so he can be aggressive on his first strike. So I think team's ability to disguise the serve and to hit all the targets is going to be really put to the test. You know, can he do it? Can he be patient enough? Can he be resilient enough to just accept the fact that Novak is going to get a lot of serve back in play and they're going to come back and play in the offensive manner. So it's going to be a mental chess game and it's going to be about um, both of these guys ability to hit one or two extra balls per point to finish. Um, and I think team will accept that challenge because he had to do it a couple nights against couple nights ago against uh, Rafa, and he knows that Novak's the same, if not better, at it on the hard court. So we'll see if team's up for the task. We certainly will. Can't wait for that final as well as the women's final. Uh, we have one more clip on the TC Live podcast I want to toss to. It's the 25th anniversary of the epic match between Pete Sampras and Jim Courier in Australia where Pete came back from two sets down to Pete Courier with the uh, weight of a personal tragedy. His coach, Tim Golikson, uh falling ill. Eventually, it was a, a fatal illness. We're going to play that clip now on TC Live with Jim Courier on set, breaking down that match with John Wertheim, Martina Navratilova, and Brett Haber. Hard to believe 25 years have passed since that remarkable moment. We say good morning to Jim Courier as we morning. reflect back on it. Um, Pete was so well known for being stoic, 
Had you ever seen him reveal his emotions so openly anywhere, let alone on a tennis court? No, that's kind of one of the, the positives that came out of that situation is that people got to know Pete Sampras a little better because he was very contained. And that was the first time he really let his emotions show on a match in that fashion. Yes, he'd pumped his fist before. Yes, he hadn't really cracked a racket in anger. You know, Pete was, was very much of the Aussie mentality. You don't do that. But this was beyond his control. You know, he was unclear all of us were unclear exactly what was going on with Tim Tim had had a problem in Stockholm the fall prior where he had had sort of lost consciousness in the hotel had to be taken to the hospital by Bill Norris our trainer we knew he was dealing with something it was unclear exactly what that was that he and and Tom Gullicks and his twin were on a plane as we played flying back to Chicago to figure that diagnosis out there was a lot swirling um, just a lot of uncertainty and for Pete it just overwhelmed him and he was able to somehow summon you know his greatness when he needed it and he kind of put the emotions on pause for a minute and, and made his way into the finals of that tournament he was out of gas when he got to the finals emotionally and I think physically spent too mm -hmm. It was hard for Pete, clearly, but you knew Tim Gullickson well as mm -hmm. well. And what was it like for you to be dealing with this on the it was court a, as an opponent? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Martina. I mean, m a lot of people don't know that the night before that match, Pete and I and Paul Anacone and, and the whole group with Tim and Tom Gullickson, we all went out to dinner together, which uh, Pete and I played a few times in majors. That's the only time that ever happened. So we were well aware that this was a different type of match. It had a different feel to it all along. Uh, the quality of tennis w was good, but there was an emotional component to it that we would never, yeah. thankfully, have to have in a match again. So it was very, it was surreal. Um, but again, it's one of those matches that we were in the locker room afterwards together on training tables next to each other talking about, you know, Tim and the matches. And that's, again, as you know, having been in the locker room, one of the weird components, you can go through that type of experience together. And then you're also dealing with it together in the aftermath in a way. Well, you were classy about it during the match. So it Thanks, was tough. Yeah. Is there any infrastructure was there then for how to deal with something like this? I mean, we're reminded, we saw it with Kobe Bryant this week, we're reminded real life happens. And we sometimes forget that watching Athletes, was, was there no, any sort of guy? Tennis, tennis is not exempt from life. Right. You know, we see pe players like Amanda Anisimova having to deal with traumatic change in their world, and, and there are people who don't play professional sports who deal with it every day. So we're, we're not exempt from that. We're just under a microscope. That's the only different thing. That's the diff Pete would have been dealing with that one way or the other. Mm. It just so happened to be during a major when the cameras were on, and there's already a heightened sense of, of sensitivity and emotion, right. um, and then you just magnify it when you get those types of scenarios. You were very active in, in the aftermath of, of all that for many years in the foundation that Tim and Tom founded to support uh, brain yeah. tumor research uh, for families. Yep. And I think we can all shout out to uh, Tim's widow, Rosemary, their kids, Eric and Megan, and say that your mm. dad will always be part of the sport. Yeah. All right, Paul, we uh, we just listened to the clip, and uh, I know you have a personal connection having coached Pete and, and really stepping into that role as his coach immediately after that Australian Open. I know it's an emotional time to, to bring up anything like that in terms of a personal tragedy. I just kept coming back to this thought with Pete Sampras and in this match, and he's one of the greatest tennis players that we've ever seen, but his competitive nature, his belief in himself, and his ability to overcome you know, tragedy on and off the court, I think really set him apart. In this match, it's not a major final. It's not a Wimbledon title. It's not an ATP uh, year-end number one race or a match of that proportion. But I think it just showed you the character that he had on the court. And I'm really interested to hear if, uh, your perspective of this, having been so close uh, to how Pete was able to deal with all the circumstances and really put out one of the defining moments of his career. Yeah, I mean, it, um, 
it was one of the most kind of sobering moments of my life. Um, Tim Gully uh, was Pete's coach and kind of a everybody's big brother on the tour. Just a great guy came along. I came along on tour when he and Tom were kind of wrapping up their um, career, so got to be very friendly with them. And when that happened down here, Pete and Tim basically just asked. I was still playing, and they just asked if I would just kind of stay on and, and help out. Well, Tim and Tom went home to kind of find out what was what and to try to figure out how to tackle this challenge of the disease he was um, – that he was facing um, these brain tumors and, and the brain cancer. And so I stayed down and was really just trying to be a friend and not get in the way of things. Um, luckily I was on the phone with Tim um, through this tournament. And, and when this happened with Jim, you know, I think the hardest thing for Pete and I remember after this match being up until four o'clock in the morning with Pete in his hotel room talking about what had happened because he, Pete Sampras was an, was a player and is a man that prides himself on controlling his environment and being able to play through adversity. Yet here he was on center court or on Rod Laver arena in tears, you know, coming to grips with what his coach was going through. And so he had a really hard time understanding at that moment why this was happening and why he wasn't able to kind of just play and and so a lot of our conversations were just about the fact that it's just human nature and the downside of it for Pete that night was he did it on center court in front of 14,000 people with millions of people watching so that that's really makes you kind of drop your jaw if you're Pete because how did it happen and for a fan it makes you drop your jaw because you're like how are you able to play through that and it's a testimony to his wherewithal and his ability and great skills to to fight and also it's um one of those things that as um an athlete I think it's kind of it's a different kind of a gut check because you don't know if and how you can proceed and yet you do. So, so for me, it was just one of those moments where you can't believe what you're watching and you're both incredibly impressed and incredibly heartbroken at the same time. Um, you're heartbroken because of what Tim Gullickson and his family had to go through and you're impressed because you can't believe what an athlete's able to do when they zero their mind in. And there are very few athletes, if any, that I've ever seen that has the razor's edge like focus that Pete Sampras had. Um, He was heartbroken. He was crestfallen. And yet he's able to go out there and play one of his biggest rivals and find a way to come back from two sets to love and basically just kind of serve his way into the next round and both of those guys had an incredible relationship, Jim and Pete, with Tim Gully. Um, and the dinner the night before with all of us was something that was really special to all be there with Tim and Tom um, and Pete and Jim and, and a few others and just really kind of have some camaraderie. And, and um, then to go out and have a war like that the next day was um, – really just jaw-dropping. 
Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly. And and not only did Pete have to play uh, through the face of tragedy, but he had to play a two-time champion and, and one of the best players on tour. So you compound that with the fact that you have to put yourself in that position and play against one of the greats in the game. It was an awe-inspiring performance. And, um, you know, I know that there's no easy way, there's no manuscript for how to deal with tragedy. But I just think 25 years, it's a long time has passed. It's still remembered as one of his defining moments. And, it, and it's kind of crazy to think that because he's, as we mentioned, had so much success on the tennis court, has that reputation for being the, one of the most focused athletes ever. And here we are talking about an, ins, an awe-inspiring performance that wasn't a major final that involved just a reality and something that people can relate to dealing with loss and having to power through. Yeah, and but that that to me is, you know, I think that's what's amazing about sports, right? We all want to grasp a personal bond with superstars, with icons. And for the early days in Pete's career, people just thought he was, you know, kind of this robotic guy that just went out, didn't feel things and just played tennis. So in many ways, this opened his heart to so many people. And in many ways, um, the fans were able to jump in and kind of take him by the hand and pat him on the back and say, wow, you know, we've been through this, we see this, and you are one of us. And, and so for people to see superhuman talents become human because of emotion, that's a huge link. And that's what they saw with Pete on that night. And I think that was a new beginning to a level of being embraced by the fandom out there. Absolutely, absolutely was. Uh, we remember Tim Gullickson and all he did for the game, as well as that epic match 25 years ago in Melbourne between Pete Sampras and Jim Currier, something none of us will ever forget. Uh, Paul Anacone, this was a blast. Thank you for joining the TC Live podcast. Hope you enjoy the uh, finals. I think we're all pretty jealous that you're going to be down there for some pretty unexpected, unpredictable matchups. Well, thanks for having me on, and uh, you guys should be jealous. I am here, and it's going to be a blast. So you just have to pull up your chairs, pull up a seat, buckle your seatbelt, uh, turn on Tennis Channel, watch uh, the matches, and get a big bucket of popcorn and enjoy. We absolutely will. Paul Anacone on the TC Live podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can find every episode of this podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we'll see you next week.